it made it sound like a black family almost had to have a military level of preparation that mm-hmm. uh, you had to uh, the mother had to boil eggs and make sandwiches because they weren't sure which restaurants they could eat in. They had to store gas cans in the trunk because they weren't sure which gas stations would serve them. They had to keep blankets around because they might have to sleep in the car and they even had to keep coffee cans in case they weren't able to use a bathroom at certain places. <laughs> Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I dig a little deeper into the history of the American family road trip. You might recall that in yesterday's episode, that is Deviate episode 37, I did a deep dive into the golden age of American road trips in the decades after World War II. But as is the case with a lot of chapters in American history, many of the happy-go-lucky joys surrounding life on the American road weren't quite so simple for African-American families who weren't always welcome at the same restaurants, gas stations, and motels that served white families. Now, This held true in the Jim Crow atmosphere of the American South, where racial codes made it taboo for, say, black motorists to do something so simple as pass a vehicle driven by a white motorist. But this also held true in racially intolerant all-white corners of the American Midwest and West, where in what came to be known as sundown towns, African Americans weren't allowed out on the streets after 6 p.m. Now, to better understand this situation and the challenges it posed for black road trippers in America, I spoke with scholar and cultural documentarian Candace Taylor. Candace is an expert on the Negro Motorist Green Book, a hugely popular, user-generated African-American road trip guide that was in effect a travel-hacking handbook for black families on American highways in the pre-civil rights era. And while the Green Book is a thing of the past, present-day travel in America isn't always so simple for black Americans as it is for white Americans, which is something I learned in a very vivid way in the city of Memphis during my first vagabonding trip across the USA back when I was 23 years old. I share that story in this episode, and Candace offers up several stories of her own as we examine the creativity and resilience that African-American families had to embrace as they set out on their own journeys during the golden age of American road trips. We begin by using life along iconic Route 66 as a case in point. Let's listen in. Taking a an example like Route 66, the classic road trip road in America as an example, how might a family road trip have been different for a black fa- family in the 19 or 50s or 60s? Well, yes. I mean, it was very different. I learned this when I was um, I was commissioned to write a travel guide on Route 66. So I was asking the same question because so many books had covered Route 66 about you know the white middle class nuclear family that jumps in their airstream trailer and you know hits the road. And I thought, well, what was it like for black people? And that's how I discovered the the Negro Motorist Green Book. And also learned, you know, through James Lowen's book, uh, Sundown Towns, hmm. that um, nearly half of the counties along Route 66 were sundown towns. So for those who don't, you know, who haven't heard that term, sundown towns were all white communities that were all white on purpose. So you couldn't be black and be in that town after 6 p.m. or there were consequences. I mean, that ranged from, you know, harassment to being escorted out of town to being lynched. You know, you just, it didn't, it just depended. You know, if you were at a certain place in the Ozarks where the Ku Klux Klan literally ran a major 
uh, Route 66 tourist site, which was called the Fantastic Caverns. It's still around today. It's no longer run by the Ku Klux Klan, but at one time it was, and there's photographs of them actually having their cross burnings inside the cave. And it was a kitschy, you know, fun experience for most people because you could drive through the cave. So that was the, you know, the selling point of why you should go. And uh, again, that's, you know, in Springfield, Missouri, which ironically is the birthplace of Route 66, right? Mm. So the fact that, yeah, Route 66 has a very layered history. And like I said, if it was, what, 44 out of the 89 counties along Route 66 were sundown towns. So right off the bat, that changes, right, how you travel Route 66, because you have to make sure that you're not going to be in the wrong place after 6 p.m. and that you have enough time to get to the next place. So, for instance, just really quickly, so if you're leaving Chicago, where Route 66 you know, essentially starts, if you're heading west, and you're going to, there were over 200 sundown towns just in the state of Illinois. So it, it was another 180 miles in Springfield, Illinois, before you even found a place where Green Book sites were located or where you weren't, because there were just, you know, there were sundown towns pretty much back to back until you got to Springfield. So it was, it was very, you know, it, was, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the same. <laughs> there, there's a couple points I want to touch on. And, and one that Green Book sites, literally the Green Book, uh, guided black motorists at the time. It, it gave them options in places in, at a time when hotels and gas stations weren't available to everybody. Uh, and another point I, I want to make here is that um, a lot of these sundown towns, even most of these sundown towns, were in the Midwest and the West. Um, and I'm, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Kansas. And I think sometimes we can get a little self-congratulatory on saying, well, <laughs> it's not like the South, right? You know, the, the, the racism that existed wasn't like the South. But sundown towns were actually um, all over the Midwest and West. And that made things more complicated for black families trying to enjoy their, their uh, cars and their road trips and their middle-class uh, American rights. Um, the author uh, John A. Williams wrote in the 1960s, white travelers have no idea how much nerve and courage it requires for a Negro to drive coast to coast in America. Um, and so I want to touch a little bit on the nitty-gritty and maybe make some distinctions between South and North. Um, Isabel Wilkerson's book, The Warmth of Other Suns, which you quoted in your own writing, um, has a passage that really startled me when I read it. It says, throughout the South, the conventional rules of the road did not apply when a colored motorist was behind the wheel. If he reached an intersection first, he had to let the white motorist go ahead of him. He could not pass a white motorist on the road no matter how slowly the white motorist was going and had to take extreme caution to avoid an accident because he would likely be blamed no matter who was at fault. In everyday interactions, a black person could not contradict a white person or speak unless spoken to first. Um, mm -hmm. That was something that I didn't know. And I would think that there's many levels of anxiety at play here. I mean, if, if you're a black family from Chicago going down to visit family in Mississippi, suddenly there's a new set of rules. And with the existence of sundown towns outside of the South, it sounds like it was really hard to tell what rules apply to you if you were a black family during this era. Right. Exactly. And you know, that that's the, that's the bitter 
I think, truth that we've kind of lost sight of in terms of demonizing the South is, oh, they're the bad guys because they had Jim Crow segregation because it was legalized segregation and state sanctioned. However, you know, and you have to remember, too, because from the 40s to the 60s, this was also the second wave of the largest black migration that was underway that Isabel Wilkerson you know, talks about in her book, The Warmth of Other Suns. But, you know, about five million people, black people were leaving the South, moving north. Um, they weren't on road trips, but they were driving a lot of times or taking trains to leave the South to search for a better life. But, you know, they quickly learned as soon as they crossed the Mason-Dixon line that, it, 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 you know, Jim Crow had no borders, really. So I think, you know, we, we will never know really what it was like exactly to be black during that time. And I've had many conversations with my stepfather who grew up during Jim Crow as a dark-skinned black man in Tennessee and what he went through and the tricks that they, you know, they had to almost travel with props, you know, to make sure that they would stay safe. But there was no illusion. I don't think that they thought, well, now that I'm in the North or I'm in the West, everything's going to be different. Because a lot of the same federal laws that, you know, relied on segregation and, you know, there, were a, there was a lot of talk about we're going to make this equal. But the reality for a lot of black people throughout the country was still the same. You never felt, I think, completely free to jump in front of a white person, you know, at a stop sign or, you know, there was always that kind of cautious reality that you lived in living in America, not so different than the reality that, you know, no matter what type of education or social status you have as a black person today doesn't resolve, you know, absolve you from getting arrested and, uh, and thrown in jail for seemingly no reason. So in some ways, you know, there, there's a lot of parallels, but I think specifically the South, um, I, I won't say that yeah, it's hard to compare apples and oranges. I don't want to say that it was easier or harder to be in the North it was very different. And I think the assumption that, you know, you would be in the North that in some ways it could have been even more difficult because at least in the South, you had the signs, right? It was very clear where you were allowed to be and where you shouldn't be. And you were always on your, you know, you were always making sure that you knew where white people were and how you were being perceived and, you know, and how you were treating them. Um, because of this heightened sense of, you know, segregation. But when you went to the North, um, because there were fewer black people, even especially in the West, it was more challenging because say you broke down and you needed help and there was no, thankfully the Green Book had garages and towing services and uh, other things that you might need on the road. Um, but, you know, these were few and far between. When you get to the West, you can drive hundreds of miles and not have services, um, especially for black people. I, but even for white people, it was difficult to get services. So, yeah, so the fact that if you did run into somebody, it was, diff you know, it, it was not always a sure thing that you might find somebody of the same skin color that would help you. So I think in some ways it was more dangerous and even, you know, scarier to to leave the, those southern rules because it was, you know, it was very clear. It, some of the things that I've interest I, I've read uh, about traveling 
um, you know, through the West, for example, during that era, it made it sound like a black family almost had to have a military level of preparation that mm-hmm. uh, you had to, uh, the mother had to boil eggs and make sandwiches because they weren't sure which restaurants they could eat in. They had to store gas cans in the trunk because they weren't sure which gas stations would serve them. They had to keep blankets around because they might have to sleep in the car and they even had to keep coffee cans in case they weren't able to use a bathroom at certain places. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it just seems like a, a strange... Uh, you know, again, this 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 sense of anxiety and uncertainty that accompanied that. You actually mentioned your stepfather used props. Um, mm-hmm. What's an example of that? Well, the story that he told me that always will stick with me is because I have read in you know history, I'd read online and in certain history books that black men uh, often traveled with uh, chauffeurs' hats, um, even though they weren't drivers or they weren't chauffeurs, but that oftentimes you would find a chauffeur's hat in a black man's car because um, if he was pulled over, especially if he was driving a nicer car, then, you know, then he should have been according to certain, you know, sheriffs or, you know, if there was always a jealousy of middle-class blacks who did have nicer things. So this happened to my stepfather, um, Ron, because as I said, he grew up in Tennessee. They were taking a vacation going north, and they got pulled over in a small town by a white sheriff. And, you know, um, my his father was driving, and his mother was sitting in the passenger seat, and Ron, my stepfather, was sitting in the back seat. And the uh, sheriff says, you know, pulls him over. The first thing he asks is, whose car is this? You know, and um, right before the sheriff came to the door, Ron's father turned to him and looked at him and said, do not say a word. And Ron had no idea. He was seven years old. He, you know, he, he had no idea what was going on. Uh, the sheriff comes. He's asking, whose car is this? Um, Ron's father says, it's my employer's car. And uh, then he looked at, you know, his, what was his wife sitting next to him saying, well, who is she? And he pretended he didn't know her and said, She's the maid, and this is her son, and I'm driving them home. And, you know, he was like, okay, go ahead. So they got, they were able to go. But, you know, it was the first time Ron, you know, Ron said he had sat in the backseat of that car. His dad worked for the railroad, had a good job, and they were middle class. And and he didn't understand why that, and even when the sheriff said, you know, where's your hat? Because he wasn't wearing the hat, Ron's father said, oh, it's hanging up in the back officer and it was and ron said i looked at that hat all you know for years and didn't know what it was or why it was important and then he noticed it in many other cars that he rode in after that and so that was one major prop that black men used over i guess many decades um to save their lives and potentially get out of um bad situations with uh, with law enforcement yeah, it's so strange that uh, that in America, a middle-class person would have to pretend to <laughs> that this nice car is anything but their, their own car. Um, mm-hmm. Now, let's bring in uh, sort of this interesting American story of, of Victor Green, who created the Green Book. Wh- who was he, and how did he come to create this travel guide that really helped black motorists find their way through this anxiety and uncertainty of, of, of road tripping across America? 
Yeah, Victor Green was a postal worker uh, from Harlem, New York, and he had this ingenious idea. You know, his wife, uh, he used to take her on trips down to Virginia and uh, realized that driving wasn't, you know, it was complicated, uh, crossing state lines and leaving New York. And he had uh, his, his brother-in-law lived with them, who was a musician, who also told stories about kind of the challenges of traveling um, as, a, as a black musician. And he had a Jewish friend who had a, uh, who used a, a guide um, for the Borscht Belt. It was a travel guide that was for Jewish people. And Victor Green thought, well, that would be good for black people, you know. So that's how he got the idea. And uh, he, it's established in 1936. The first edition was published in 1937. And it was published for uh, over a 30-year span until 1967. And it was really successful because obviously there was a need for it. You know, the Green Book wasn't the only uh, Black Traveler's Guide. There were others. Um, but the Green Book was significant because it was published for the longest period of time and it had the widest readership um, for many reasons. Um, Victor Green had a very ingenious idea to collaborate or basically use all of, he was in the union for the Postal Workers Union. And so a lot of postal routes were segregated throughout the country. So black postal workers generally worked in these black neighborhoods. And so he, you know, contacted them and asked them to talk about or basically solicit the Green Book for him in these communities. And that's how it spread throughout the country. And so within a couple of years of him launching the Green Book. It was all the way across, you know, the Mississippi River, and it was throughout every state, um, with the exception of North Dakota, uh, for the next decade. So it was really successful and, you know, hugely popular. It was also distributed by SO gas stations, which was Standard Oil at the time, which is Exxon today. Um, and so they were on the right side of history. They allowed they had black marketing executives that they hired um, to help promote the Green Book. And, um, and so having that kind of support, um, marketing support, was, was really critical, too, to the Green Book success. But it was, it was amazing. Yeah, that I, I want to touch on the on the ESO sponsorship uh, in a second because it really speaks to the power of the black dollar, which is one interesting um, aspect of this story. Uh, but one thing that struck me about the way that Victor Green put this together is it was almost like a it was user generated in a certain sense that he was getting uh, you know postal officers at at first, and it sounds like later users to send in contributions. It was almost sort of. A, a Wikipedia travel guide of its time where it, it wasn't just Victor Green telling people where to go. It was everybody sharing ideas. Um, what I loved about uh, the idea of, of SO being in, in, in partnership, and you said that Standard Oil, is that the? Right. Standard yeah. Oil was SO, S, like SO, right? Yeah. So it was okay. spelled ESSO, but the initials SO stood for Standard Oil. Yeah, it's interesting these these um, these businesses that were principled during this time of of Jim Crow and pre-civil rights. I mean, I think of the Sears catalog as um, 
as an entity that sort of recognized the power of the black dollar early and, and was selling products to African-Americans as early as uh, the 1900s and the 19-teens, um, I actually looked at some of the information for areas that I know. And two two things struck me. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure if the 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 green guy or the green book covered Wichita, Kansas, until later periods of its existence. But one is that the proprietors of private homes who hosted black travelers in Wichita were all women. Um, so I, I think it was interesting that that I get the sense that it encouraged female um, enterprise. And the other thing that struck me is that. Two of the hotels that also uh, welcomed black travelers in the 50s and 60s had been super fancy downtown hotels in the 20s and 30s. It was the Lassen and the, and the Alice. Um, and the Alice Hotel was, was modeled on the Waldorf. And so I think in a, in a time when motels were replacing hotels and these downtown institutions were losing money, they, they were actively courting the black dollar uh, to stay in business. Uh, and so it's, so it's interesting that... Um, that despite certain prohibitions, um, the black dollar was actually uh, flexing its muscle a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, a couple things. I mean, Esso obviously was, a lot of people have said too, that other, there were other businesses. There was a huge campaign when the Green Book started of, you know, buy black and make sure that black people spend money in places where they can, where they will be hired or from other black merchants. So there was a big groundswell in major cities of, uh, because of the treatment. There were so many riots. There was a big Harlem riot that was happening in 1935, right when Victor Green was, you know, probably had the idea for the Green Book. And so given that that was happening in society, um, you know, there were certain white companies or, you know, major corporations that thought, wait a second, maybe we're not, you know, this isn't smart. <laughs> we're basically just not even, you know, we're turning away money from a major viable market. Um, and, but, you know, but Esso in particular went beyond what most companies at the time who did choose to integrate because, you know, the integration came with a cost. If some, and there are letters that were written to Victor Green when he wrote to certain uh, places in North Dakota saying, you know, we really would love to have you be a part of the Green Book. And they said, well, we're not racist, but, you know, it's complicated here because there's so few black people and, you know, they had all these kind of ludicrous excuses. But the bottom line was that they were afraid um, because they knew they, they felt like they were going to alienate their white customers and they would lose business if they integrated. So, you know, Exxon, Esso, um, went far beyond this, though. They not only had black men, you know, franchise their own uh, gas stations. And it wasn't that they just served black people. They hired black people as chemists. You know, as I said, these marketing executives, they were in every aspect of the company. And, you know, once I did a little research, I thought, well, why is that? You know, wh why would they go beyond um, what most businesses would do? And when I learned more about Rockefeller who ran Esso at the time, and his wife was Laura Spellman. Um, and she was uh, a huge abolitionist. Her parents were major abolitionists. She grew up in a house that was on the uh, Underground Railroad. And so I believe she probably influenced him as well. And Spellman College, the black college, is named after her family. So, you know, so I think this was a rare... 
uh, situation where, you know, it wasn't just that it wasn't just about money for SO. Um, I think they actually had a real um, they had a very deep concern and interest in civil rights. And so they went above and beyond. But in terms of, um, you know, what you were saying in the, the last part of your, your statement, um, that's the other thing that was interesting about the Green Book is that there were so many different kinds of properties over its 30-year span. And you're right, included major, you know, impressive luxury hotels. Uh, the Bel Air in L.A. that is still open today was a Green Book site. Um, and I think part of that was maybe pressure from celebrities like Sammy Davis Jr., um, you know, Pearl Bailey, Duke Ellington, all of these celebrities that had been popular in the 40s and 50s. By the time the 60s came around, you know, and there was, you know, civil rights were shifting to or towards a place where it wasn't unusual to see black people in white spaces. Um, these major you know, restaurants and hotels that serve the elite. Um, it was it was exciting to see Sammy Davis Jr. be a part of to walk into the restaurant or or something. And so, you know, some of these white owners really embraced that and started becoming a part of the Green Book. Um, there was a hotel in uh, Philadelphia that was run by um, oh I forget the name, but it was run by a white family and. Uh, Jackie Robinson had gone there in the 40s and was turned away uh, the ball play because he was black. Um, but then five years after that, they were in the Green Book, you know. So there was a transition that was happening and attitudes were shifting. Um, and then after, you know, 1965, once the Civil Rights Act happened in 1964, it was really... Um, Obviously, it wasn't a, you know, a cure-all, and uh, the Green Book was still in publication until 1967. Um, but you know, things were changing, and white companies were were seeing the value of the black dollar for sure. Yeah, well, I, I want to touch on how where things stand today. It's something you alluded to a little bit earlier. You know, um, my first long-term trip uh, was when I was younger. It was in 1994. I traveled around America with some friends. Uh, and we slept in the van. And I'll never forget this incident I had in Memphis where I met this guy named Keith. Um, just a street busker, nice guy, was hanging out with us like any group of young men would hang out together, and he was really curious about our trip. And the more we explained what we were doing, that basically we were just like pulling into motel parking lots and then sleeping in the van in the lot and not using – and maybe swimming in the pool – uh, or going to residential neighborhoods and sleeping in the van. We, we saved a lot of money that way. And I just sort of remember how how his attitude shifted. And he sort of had to explain to us that as a young black man, he'd have to spend five times as much money because he wouldn't feel safe in 1994 sleeping in a van, that he would be called out by the same hotel owners and people in these suburbs who might ignore a couple of white guys coming in and out of a van and, and sleeping all night there. And so that I think that was – sometimes it's hard to, to recognize your own ra racial privilege, but that was a, a moment where just like hanging out with this guy – who uh, we shared a lot in common with, helped me realize that that task was still complicated in 1994. Uh, so where do you think it stands in, in 2018 uh, to be a black American or, or 
a black American family uh, out on the road and, and having a road trip? How, are there still dangers and, and annoyances and anxieties? Absolutely. I mean, I think, and I think it's becoming more clear to people, you know, I've heard stories similar to yours and, um, you know, even in, on college campuses, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of things that have happened. Um, Airbnb, you know, people who are trying to rent Airbnbs who are black, who are being arrested, uh, because they show up and, you know, they have a key to get in and white neighbors call and say, somebody's breaking into that house. And, uh, this happens over and over and over again. Um, Airbnb is trying to rectify, you know, it's not that Airbnb is a racist company, um, but it's really to develop a, a system that allows, you know, people to move in, to come to a place that's not vetted um, by, you know, by people. It, it's just the way that the business model is set up is kind of ripe for racial discrimination. And we are still in a society that, um, that has deep problems and we have not resolved them. And so despite, you know, our best efforts and despite the fact that most people are not racist, um, there still aren't enough protections to, uh, to make sure that it's safe for black people to travel. NAACP just posted a list of what's warning for the state of Missouri um, for black travelers, because after Ferguson, they saw that so many people were, um, sorry, there's a siren outside. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, you know, but they saw that it was not safe for black people to, to drive through the state of Missouri. And so it's been a very difficult, um, you know, I think it's been a very difficult journey for black, not for black people in particular. It's, I think now it's finally that the rest of America is now seeing this. And I think that's really progress in terms of, you know, when you see what happened with Starbucks um, and the black, you know, like you said, it's a whole different experience. You know, these two black men come and sit down and then all of a sudden they're arrested, you know, because they haven't ordered anything. Um, so I think, you know, now we're, we're understanding how what it means to be black in society and in, in America, and uh, you know the solutions surrounding this are obviously complicated. And you know I don't think we really have the solutions yet, but we know what the problem is, and people are talking about it. So in my mind, that's that's progress. Yeah, I think a key phrase you mentioned there is most people are not racist. I think if if you're if you're a white American citizen, it's easy. You know, I'm sure. Almost everybody who's listening to my podcast considers themselves not racist. But again, I think it goes back to anxiety, you know, the idea that, well, it doesn't take that many racist people to sort of underlay anxiety with all of these social interactions uh, in America if you're, if you're not white and if you're black in particular. So I mean, do you have any, any um, final thoughts or perspectives on just being cognizant of of uh, the challenges of, of black travel, even in the 21st century? Well, I mean, I love the story that you told about, you know, being when you don't really recognize your privilege, you know. Um, and I think even as a black American, I don't, you know, it's, I have to remind myself of the privilege I have of, as if I, you know, if I were 
an immigrant. Um, like I can jaywalk across the street and maybe not get be so worried that I'm going to be thrown into a detention center. Um, so even I, you know, as a black woman, have some privilege in this country. And I think it would be better if all of us could look at, you know, our daily lives in that way. I mean, there's always somebody who's struggling or who has who has a harder time, whether it's, you know, disability issues or, or mental struggles or whatever. And we're all just here to, you know, try and, and make it through, you know, our lives safe and happy. And I think that um, the most, if, if we could just at least understand that the traditional black experience is not the traditional white experience. So until we recognize that, I don't think it's going to change. But, um, but I think that's the first hurdle, you know, compassion and, and consciousness. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Candace Taylor's essays about the Negro Motorist Green Book, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Oh.